The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 18, to the chief musician, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. The pangs of death surround me, and the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple, and my cry came before him, even to his ears. Then the Lord shook and trembled. The foundations of the hills also quaked and were shaken, because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down with the darkness under his feet. And he rode upon a cherub and flew. He flew upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his secret place. His canopy around him was dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him, his thick clouds passed with fire with hailstones and coals of fire, the Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out his arrows and scattered the foe, lightnings in abundance, and he vanquished them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were uncovered. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils, he sent from above he took me, he drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He also brought me out into a broad place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his judgments were before me, and I did not put away his statutes from me. I was also blameless before him, and I kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. With the merciful you will show yourself merciful. With the blameless man you will show yourself blameless." With the pure, you will show yourself pure. And with the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. For you will save the humble people, but will bring down haughty looks. For you will light my lamp. The Lord my God will enlighten my darkness. For by you, I can run against a troop. By my God, I can leap over a wall. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. For who is God except the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? 
It is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer, and he sets me on high places. He teaches my hands to make war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have also given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand has held me up. Your gentleness has made me great. You enlarged my path under me so my feet did not slip. I have pursued my enemies and overtaken them. Neither did I turn back again till they were destroyed. I have wounded them so that they could not rise. They have fallen under my feet, for you have armed me with strength for the battle. You have subdued under me those who rose up against me. You have also given me the necks of my enemies so that I destroyed those who hated me. They cried out, but there was none to save. Even to the Lord, but he did not answer them. Then I beat them as fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like dirt in the streets. You have delivered me from the strivings of the people. You have made me the head of the nations. A people I have not known shall serve me. As soon as they hear of me, they obey me. The foreigners submit to me. The foreigners fade away and come frightened from their hideouts. The Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. Let the God of my salvation be exalted. It is God who avenges me and subdues the peoples under me. He delivers me from my enemies. You also lift me up above those who rise against me. You have delivered me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles, and sing praises to your name. Great deliverance he gives to his king and shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants forevermore. Okay, we're in Deuteronomy 14, verses 3 through 21. It's entitled, A Holy People to the Lord. You shall not eat any detestable thing. These are the animals which you may eat, the ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roe deer, the wild goat, the mountain goat, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. And you may eat every animal with cloven hooves, having the hoof split into two parts, and that chews the cud among the animals. Nevertheless, of those that chew the cud or have cloven hooves, you shall not eat such as these, the camel, the hare, and the rock hyrax, for they chew the cud, but they do not have cloven hooves. They are unclean for you. Also the swine is unclean for you because it has cloven hooves, yet does not chew the cud. You shall not eat their flesh or touch their dead carcasses. These you may eat of all that are in the waters. You may eat all that have fins and scales. And whatever does not have fins and scales, you shall not eat. It is unclean for you. All clean birds you may eat, but these you shall not eat. The eagle, the vulture, the buzzard, the red kite, the falcon, and the kite after their kinds. Every raven after its kind. The ostrich, the short-eared owl, the seagull, and the hawk after their kinds. The little owl, the screech owl, the white owl. The jackdaw, the carrion vulture, the fisher owl, the stork, the heron after its kind, and the hoopoe, and the bat. Also, every creeping thing that flies is unclean for you. They shall not be eaten. You may eat all clean birds. You shall not eat anything that dies of itself. You may give it to the alien who is within your gates, that he may eat it, or you may sell it to a foreigner. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. How often do we hear that there are contradictions in the word of God? I got several emails about that this week. 
It is true that many things are difficult and some things are exceptionally hard to pin down as to why they seem to, in fact, contradict. However, the more we study the word, the more we learn the context of what is being said, and the more we evaluate these supposed contradictions in that context, we find that they do not only not contradict, instead they make complete sense. Many people within the faith dismiss the idea of dispensations, but it is the dispensational model that eliminates many of these supposed contradictions. In Genesis 9, it says, And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth, and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. The implication is that until that point in human history, man did not eat animals. So, Something different was happening that did not happen before that time. Next, in our verses from Deuteronomy today, it says that the people cannot eat a perfectly porky pig. This stands completely at odds with what was said to Noah, unless there is a reason for it. Further, the implication at this time, as will be seen in our verses today, is that these things did not apply to non-Israelites. What was said to Noah still applied to all but Israel. And then in the New Testament, Paul says the following. It's our text verse, Romans 14, 14. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. But wait, Paul was an Israelite. His people had been told that there are things that are unclean for them. We just read the passage. Here we are piling up contradictions. Unless, unless God is working out the redemptive narrative in anyone? Dispensations. That's correct. He is doing different things at different times and for different reasons. And yet none of these things contradict in any way, in any shape, or in any form. Rather, they complement the narrative, if one understands the narrative. One could say that each of those eras was initiated with a covenant, that's true, and thus covenantalism is what is being described here. But if that is so, then how can it be that the dispensation of grace that Paul speaks of in Ephesians 3, which applies to both Gentiles and Jews, remember Paul is a Jew and the Ephesians were Gentiles, doesn't apply to all Jews. And further... It is obvious that the Mosaic Covenant still surely applies to Israel today, and yet it doesn't apply to all Jews today. How is that possible if the covenantal model of theology is the complete and final answer to the question? Indeed, it is not. There are clearly covenants in Scripture, but there are also set dispensations plainly presented in Scripture as well. Understanding this is one avenue to eliminating supposed contradictions in the word. Without properly applying set dispensations, you will, not maybe, you will have contradictions in your theology. Keep the boxes straight, don't mix dispensations, and spend as much time as you can in the word. The more you are in it, the more it will make sense to you. This is actually a precept typologically implied in our verses today. Yes, it's all to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again. 
And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got four thoughts for you today. Four. The first is clean and unclean quadrupeds. It's verses three through eight. Verse three, you shall not eat any detestable thing. Lo tokal kal to'eva. No, you shall eat all abomination. The word is to'eva, an abomination. It is derived from ta'av, a verb signifying to abhor. The precepts in these verses follow largely from Leviticus 11, where the word sheketz, or detestable thing, was predominantly used. So we've got a little change already. You remember the Leviticus 11 sermons? Well, now we're in Deuteronomy. It's going to be similar, but there will be differences. That chapter contains eight of its 11 uses, but all 11 refer to detestable animals. Rather than that word, Moses uses a more common word, one which was heavily stressed in Leviticus 18, a chapter dealing predominantly with sexual immorality, and yet now it's being applied to unclean foods. In this, one can see that for Israel, the animal was to be considered as a detestable thing because it is considered an abomination. However, the reason for it being an abomination must be drawn out from the purpose of the law. These cannot be abominable in and of themselves. This is seen first from Genesis chapter 9, verses 3 and 4. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. God gave all living creatures into man's hand for food. This would have been the case with Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all other people within this line until the giving of the law. Job and those outside of this line who are considered upright before God were also free from these precepts. Further, Jesus says in Mark chapter 7, Are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. And he said, What comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. Paul further and very clearly reveals that all foods are acceptable to eat. He does this several times and in several ways, plainly presenting this as an axiom. Therefore, it is the law itself, the law itself, that makes these things both detestable and an abomination. It is not that they are so in and of themselves. As this is absolutely established, and as the law is only given to Israel, and to no other person or group of people in all of redemptive history than the reason for the precepts in Leviticus, which are substantially repeated here, is found in the purpose of the law. That purpose is to then be drawn out with such a consideration in mind. With that understood, Moses defines what is acceptable for Israel to eat. First, verse 4, these are the animals which you may eat. Moses states it in the singular to define each type. Zot ha asher tokelu. This, the animal which you may eat. In Leviticus 11, the clean animals were not defined only what defined them as clean. On the other hand, the unclean animals were defined, giving some, but not all, examples of what was forbidden. 
Moses takes a different approach here, showing examples of what can be eaten and only later of what cannot. Many of these animals are implicitly or explicitly noted as clean elsewhere, but Moses is being precise in first telling which are clean without yet explaining the reason for it being so. Verse 4 continues, the ox, the sheep, the goat. Moses continues the precise wording, leaving off any articles. Sure, say kesavim, vesay izim, ox, lamb of sheep, and kid of goats. In this, he names the animals acceptable for sacrifice, and then he mentions all others. Here he starts with the shore, or ox, that comes from a root signifying to wander about. It is a traveling animal. The se, or lamb, probably comes from a root sha'ah, signifying to crash, or to make a din. Thus, it would be an animal that pushes out to graze. That is then defined by the word kesavim, identifying it as a flocking animal. Moses then says, vese izim, and kid of goats. It is the same word, se, that was just used for the lamb, but it is then identified with the word izim, or goats. It is the plural of the word ez, meaning a goat, which comes from a word signifying to be strong. Being sacrificial animals, it has already been explained in Leviticus how they point to Jesus Christ in his work. To understand that, check out all of those sermons. These are all animals of the flock and the herd. Next, Moses says, verse 5, the deer, the gazelle, the roe deer, the wild goat, the mountain goat, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. Moses continues by stating the wild, non-sacrificial animals. He does so without using any articles, simply stating each animal in the singular. Ayal, utsivi, veyachmur, veyako, veydishon, uteo, vazamer. Deer, and gazelle, and roe deer, and wild goat, and mountain goat, and antelope, and mountain sheep. It should be noted that due to the rarity of the names, the identification of some of these is highly debated. The first two are rather common in scripture, the ayal or deer. That comes from ayil or a ram, which then comes from ul, signifying mighty or strength. This anticipates believers in Christ, where Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Next is the tzivi or gazelle, which signifies beauty or honor. The word is used when speaking of the coming Messiah in Isaiah 4, verse 2. It comes from tzava, meaning to swell up. Thus, the description of the animal is that of prominence or splendor. This speaks of believers in Christ who are each to be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. That's 2 Timothy 2, verse 21. The third, the yachmur, or roe deer, is found here and in 1 Kings 4, verse 23. That comes from the word hamar, meaning to ferment or boil up. Its color is what then defines it, appearing as if its coat is vivid and alive. This animal anticipates the position of believers who are to be not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Romans 12, 11. The fourth, the akho, the ibex or wild goat is found only here. It is derived from anak, which means to cry or to groan, and so it is a slender animal. This anticipates all believers. Of us, Paul says in Romans 8.23, that we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. The fifth, dishon, or mountain goat, is found only here. It is from dush, meaning to tread or to thresh. It is the leaper. 
If you've ever seen one, you would understand the description. Watch them jump on the mountains and they just go, go like they're leaping everywhere. This looks to Paul's words of 1 Corinthians 9 verse 10, where he says that he who plows should plow in hope and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. The next teo or antelope is found only here in an Isaiah 51 verse 20. It comes from ta'a, to draw out or to mark a line. Thus, it is named probably for its white stripe or maybe for its long horns that form a line. This anticipates believers who are to walk circumspectly. In other words, draw a line around yourself. Walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. That's Ephesians 5 verse 15. Lastly, the zamur or mountain sheep is found only here. That probably comes from zamar meaning to make music in praise of God. Just as a person playing an instrument will lightly touch the string or windpipe, so this animal would lightly touch the ground. This anticipates the state of those in Christ who are to be speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. That's Ephesians 5 verse 19. As you can see, each one of these, just as it was in Leviticus 11, typifies something that is going on with people in the church age. As noted, these were not specified in Leviticus 11, but Moses specifically names these to the people here and only next explains why they may be eaten. Verse 6, and you may eat every animal with cloven hooves, having the hoof split in two parts. As a point of correct translation, the word hoof is singular here and in verse 7. It is not hooves, it is hoof. Moses repeats the substance of Leviticus 11 verse 3, stating the requirements in reverse order. There it said, among the animals, whatever divides the hoof, having cloven hooves. The words to focus on are mafraset parasa, or cloven hooves, and the fact that they are veshosaat shesa shete ferasot, or and having split the hoof in two parts. Every single word here gives the sense of division or of dividing completely. The repetition of the words is purposeful. It isn't enough to simply say splits the hooves because some animals do this, but they don't have fully split hooves. They are to split the hooves so that the hooves are completely split. Verse six continues, and that choose the cut among the animals. Ma'alat gerab ba'behema ota tohelu. Ascends cud in the beasts you may eat. The word gera or cud comes from garar to drag away. Thus, this speaks of the cud as scraping the throat. To make it ascend then means to bring the food back up. In animals, it is the process of upchucking food from the first of several stomachs where it is chewed a second time before passing into the second stomach. The idea behind this is that the maximum amount of nutrition is obtained from the food. It is also necessary because the food of these animals are difficult to digest, and so the extra process makes it much easier for them. The requirements given in Leviticus and here do not assign reasons as to why such animals are acceptable for food. They are merely distinguishing marks of what is considered acceptable, and so this verse gives the specifics of what is authorized. It is claimed that the meat of these animals is better for people for a variety of reasons, but that is untrue. It also doesn't explain why God specifies this now. One can say, oh, of course, it's because the Lord wants his people to be healthy, and this is how it will come about. But that is an insufficient explanation. 
In fact, it would simply muddy the theological waters. If that were true, then it would imply that he did not really care about this in anyone from the time of the flood until the giving of the law. Poor Abraham, right? It would also then imply that he doesn't care as much about us now because we have no such dietary restrictions. Everybody see the logic? It is unreasonable to claim that the Lord didn't care about the health of those both before, outside, and after the time of the law. And so there must be another reason for specifying this. And there is. It anticipates what believers are to do now. The purpose of both of these is that they anticipate the believer's responsibility concerning God's word. First, it concerns the proper handling of the word as outlined by Paul in 2 Timothy, where he speaks of rightly dividing the word of truth. Both commands concern the division of the hooves and to rightly divide the word are both positive in nature. The fully divided hooves gives us this picture. Likewise, the chewing of the cud gives us another picture. We are not to simply eat, swallow, and forget. The word, like the food for these animals, is very difficult to digest. Does anybody disagree with that? Because you got the wrong church if you do. I'm telling you, my head hurts every Monday when I type a sermon. Okay? So, it must be contemplated. It must be meditated upon. Like the animal that chews the cud, we are to call back the word to mind and chew on it. We're to contemplate it, and we are to get every ounce of nourishment that we can get out of it. It must be chewed and rechewed. This is why Paul said to the Philippians, and then again to Timothy, to meditate on these things. Philippians 4, verse 8. A cow spends about eight hours of every day chewing the cud. This, plus their normal chewing of food, totals approximately 40,000 jaw movements every single day. If God's people would carefully and rightly divide the word and then spend such a great amount of time contemplating it and applying it to their lives, guess what? Nothing could hinder them in their walk. Nothing. With this understanding, Moses next refers to what is forbidden. Verse 7, Nevertheless, of those that chew the cud or have cloven hooves, you shall not eat, such as these, the camel, the hare, and the rock hyrax, for they chew the cud, but they do not have cloven hooves. They are unclean for you. Can you imagine meditating on God's word all day long and never rightly dividing it? You'd be all over the place. That's the picture you're getting right there. In Leviticus 11, 4, verse 6, the Lord named these animals and gave similar explanations as to why it was to be. He said, nevertheless, these you shall not eat among those that chew the cud or those that have cloven hooves. The camel, because it chews the cud, but does not have cloven hooves. It is unclean to you. The rock hyrax, because it chews the cud, but does not have cloven hooves. It is unclean to you. The hare, because it chews the cud, but does not have cloven hooves. It is unclean to you. To understand why each of these specific animals was singled out and how they are typological of New Testament truths, be sure to rush home and watch the Leviticus 11 sermon. I'm not going to repeat all that today. Verse 8. Also, the swine is unclean for you because it has cloven hooves, yet does not chew the cud. This delightful and delicious animal that has more flavor and variety of taste running through it than a candy factory is noted in Leviticus 11 verse 7. To understand why it is mentioned here and what type of a person it is referring to, please be sure to watch that sermon. But before you go home and watch that sermon, think about it. He rightly divides the word, but he doesn't chew the cud. What kind of a person is that? 
Go back and watch the sermon. Verse 8 continues, you shall not eat their flesh or touch their dead carcasses. The utterly ridiculous nature of reinserting these precepts from the law into New Testament theology is revealed in these words. Those who are overly pious and yet underly educated in theology make a show of how they are so much better than others because of their rejecting of eating such meat, Hebrew roots movement, etc. But this list is not all-inclusive. Any animal that does not meet the requirements laid out by Moses is included in this list, such as the cat and the dog and so on. However, Jews around the world and these uninformed or willfully ignorant supposed followers of Christ will openly mourn over their dead Fifi or Fido, pick him up, and carry him to his little grave, thus violating the second and equally important precept given here. To further understand this precept, it is more fully explained in the Leviticus 11 sermons. What's for dinner, Ma? I'm hungry and my tummy is aching. What's for dinner, Ma? I can't wait till we eat. Will we have some burgers topped with cheese and bacon? I can't wait to taste the nummy, delicious treat. No, Sonny Boy, you can't have that, as you know. I don't care if that's what for your tummy is aching. We're legalists in this house, it is true, and that is so. Here, we don't eat anything topped with bacon. We are working our way to heaven despite the work of Jesus. We're on our way. This is the path we've taken. I'm sure God will look with super favor on us when we eat our burgers without any bacon. Our second thought today, clean and unclean water life. It's verses 9 and 10. Verse 9, these you may eat of all that are in the waters. You may eat all that have fins and scales. This is more fully explained in Leviticus 11, verse 9. These you may eat of all that are in the water. Whatever in the water has fins and scales, whether in the seas or in the rivers, that you may eat. The senaper and cascaset, or fins and scales, are very rare words. The fins are only found in the Torah, meaning the five books of Moses, and only in regard to fish. The word scale is found elsewhere when speaking of, for example, scale armor, such as was worn by Goliath, and there was a reason for that. As a reminder of the symbolism, fins are used to keep a fish swimming properly and moving forward, turning, staying upright, and stopping. They guide the fish smoothly and efficiently through the water. Scales are predominantly used for protection, among other things. The symbolism is perfectly obvious. Like fins, the Word of God is intended to keep us moving properly in an upright manner, ever towards Christ, not racing ahead of ourselves and not going beyond what is written. It is to be the ruling guide of our walk. And, like scales, it is intended, if we will just simply learn it, to protect us from harm. As there are many scales, and as they vary in size, they are indicative of satisfactory good works which the Bible exhorts us to apply to our lives in order to be well-rounded and fully protected from that which would otherwise bring us harm. For this reason, verse 10, and whatever does not have fins and scales, you shall not eat. And this is more fully defined in Leviticus 11, verse 10. It said there, But all in the seas or in the rivers that do not have fins and scales, all that move in the water or any living thing which is in the water. To eat something without these attributes typologically anticipates believers who run ahead without them, heading into their own self-made disaster. Hence, for Israel, verse 10 continues, 
It is unclean for you. Before we go on, does everybody remember what I said a few minutes ago? These requirements were not given to anybody before the law, outside of the law, or after the law. They're only in the law, so the law makes them unclean or clean. And it's all because the law has a purpose, which is to show us Christ. Everybody seeing that now? Okay. Leviticus 11.10 says, they are an abomination to you. The reason for including these words, for you or to you, is to show that they are not unclean in and of themselves, but only to Israel under the law. When the law was annulled in Christ, the wall of partition was taken away. These dietary restrictions went away with the law. The purpose they were given was to lead us to understanding what these things only typified for the believer. Honey, I went down to the beach and caught us some fish. And while I was there, I got some lobster too. There's plenty here, more than I could wish. Where should I put them? And what else can I do? Ack! Lobster! What are you, nuts, my dear? That isn't clean according to the law of Moses. We're working our way to heaven, but we won't make it, I fear. If you bring home stuff like lobster, we'll get an F-. minus. If we go eating the wrong stuff, things just won't go well. It would be no different than if we were a couple of mobsters. The last thing we need to do is to be cast into hell because we sat down to a nummy meal of buttered-up lobsters. Our third thought today is clean and unclean flying things. It's verses 11 through 20. Verse 11, all clean birds you may eat. All bird clean you may eat. This is not stated in Leviticus 11. Rather, the Lord begins with, and these you shall regard as an abomination among the birds. It is then anticipated that anything not forbidden in the word is, by default, clean. As there are countless birds in the world not mentioned here as unclean, but which would fall into the unclean category, it's obvious that typology is the main consideration here. It would be naive to think otherwise. And to say all clean birds without further defining what that means only solidifies this notion. There are a couple changes between the list here and that of Leviticus. These changes will be noted and the typology will be explained for them. For all the others, you will just have to continue watching all of the Leviticus 11 sermons as there is no need for me to re-explain all of those details here. We'd have a sermon that was 25 hours long. Verse 12, but these you shall not eat, the eagle, the vulture, the buzzard. These are recorded in Leviticus 11 verse 12 and are explained there. Verse 13, the red kite, the falcon, and the kite after their kinds. Of this verse, it should be noted that the words are so similar to Leviticus 11 verse 14 that someone might mistake them as the same names, but there are differences. The similarity between them is noticeable and it is confusing if not carefully analyzed. The ra'ah, called the red kite here, is not mentioned in Leviticus 11, but the da'ah is. However, it is possible that both are the same bird. The D and the R in Hebrew are almost identical, and you'll often find people making mistakes with the D and the R. Thus, it may be that the Hebrew contains a scribal error, as the NAS concordance states. If it is not a scribal error, then the ra'ah comes from a word signifying to see or to look. Thus, it is a bird of exceptionally keen sight, as birds of prey are known to be. Also, 
If it is not a scribal error, then what is equally probable is that the da'a of Leviticus 11 is represented by the third bird, the daya, or kite, and only having a variant spelling. If not, then it is only mentioned here and in Isaiah 34, 15. It is a completely different bird than the ayah, or falcon, seen in Leviticus 11:14. As you can see, the names are so closely spelled that it is very hard to know what is actually being conveyed. And the truth is, I broke my brain trying to give you a reasonable analysis of these things. I said this on class on Thursday night. I probably spent an hour or more on those three birds just so that I would have you something without error. And that's the best I can do for you. Verse 14, every raven after its kind, ve'et cow or rev lemino, and all raven to its kind. The only difference between this verse and Leviticus 11 verse 15 is the addition of the word and. Verse 15, the ostrich, the short-eared owl, the seagull, and the hawk after their kinds. The words are identical, word for word and letter for letter to Leviticus 11, verse 16. Verse 16, the little owl, the screech owl, the white owl. Here, the first two birds are mentioned in Leviticus 11:17. However, the third bird, the tinshemet, or white owl, is mentioned in Leviticus 11:18, And it is also translated in Leviticus 11, verse 30, as a chameleon. The same word describes that bird and a chameleon. Verse 17, the jackdaw, the carrion vulture, the fisher owl. The first two are mentioned in Leviticus 11.18. The only difference there in them is that the carrion vulture is pronounced ha-racham in Leviticus and ha-rachamah in Deuteronomy. The third was mentioned in Leviticus 11.17, coming out of order now. Verse 18, the stork, the heron after its kind, and the hoopoe and the bat. The same birds are mentioned here as in Leviticus 11, verse 19, but the structure of the sentence is a little bit different. In all, they both convey the same thoughts, however. Verse 19, also every creeping thing that flies is unclean for you. They shall not be eaten. The words are similar to Leviticus 11:20. All flying insects that creep on all fours shall be an abomination to you. The major difference here from Leviticus 11 is that it then goes on to describe those creeping things in much more detail, including exemptions to this law, meaning various locusts, crickets, and grasshoppers that could be eaten. Because of the lack of exceptions here, the pulpit commentary seems to suggest a contradiction in the text saying, winged insects are forbidden without exception in Deuteronomy. In Leviticus, the locust and certain other insects of the same kind are accepted. This is not correct. The words of this verse say, And every swarming thing, the flyer, unclean it for you. However, the next verse says, you may eat, verse 20, all clean birds. All flyer, clean you may eat. In other words, the clean exemptions from Leviticus 11 are considered under these words here. This was perfectly understood by the Hebrew society. We know this because of what it says about John the Baptist. It says he ate locusts and wild honey. So everybody knew that that was acceptable. Unclean till evening? What will I do? Nobody saw me touch that thing, and yet this is right. To myself and to my God, I must be true. And it's only 10 more hours until comes the night. 
it's kind of hard for me to understand this. If I had touched it at 5 p.m., I would only be unclean for an hour. What am I not getting? Or from the law, what did I miss that being unclean would carry such varying power? What is it about the ending of the day? What is it about the turning of that one hour that will my debt of uncleanness pay? What is it about that certain time that carries cleansing power? I know that in Messiah, all of this will be made known and the revealing of every mystery will be shown. Our fourth thought today, a holy people to the Lord your God. Verse 21, you shall not eat anything that dies of itself. You may give it to the alien who is within your gates that he may eat it, or you may sell it to a foreigner, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The words here are a lot of clauses that would normally be taken one by one. Before I go on, though, what did it just say? You can take that food and give it to who? An alien. They're not under the law of Moses. Anybody before, outside, or after the law is not included in this. So much for Hebrew Roots movement. Don't watch their shows, okay? The precepts overlap with quite a few other passages. Three of them are Exodus 22:31, and you shall be holy men to me. You shall not eat meat torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. Leviticus 17, 15, and 16, and every person who eats what died naturally or what was torn by beasts, whether he is a native of your own country or a stranger, he shall both wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening then he shall be clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his body, then he shall bear his guilt. And then from Leviticus 22, verse 8, whatever dies naturally or is torn by beasts, he shall not eat to defile himself with it. I am the Lord. First is the immediate verse which pertains to eating something that died of itself. The people were not to eat that. Of the three references, the first from Exodus 22 referred to meat torn by beasts. That was forbidden for two reasons. The first is that it had not been properly bled, making it unclean. Secondly, the beast which tore the animal would have been an unclean animal and thus passed on ceremonial defilement. Hence, there was defilement in both ways. The second reference speaks in the same verse of that which died naturally and that which was torn, showing that this was not allowed. But if it did happen, there was a remedy for the sin. This clearly shows that the prohibitions are spiritual in nature, and this is for several reasons. An animal that died by itself or one which was killed by other beasts did not have the blood drained out of it. The animal is dead because its lifeblood had stopped flowing. To eat this animal cannot be compared to eating blood itself because the soul had departed. And yet, it is true that the blood remained in the animal. Such meat was forbidden to be eaten. But if it were, the person was merely considered unclean. Because he ate something forbidden, it shows the spiritual nature of the mandate. And then, secondly, comes the means of purification from the defilement. Okay, he just ate something. It's inside of him, right? The first is washing the clothes, and the second is bathing. What does that have to do with what's going inside of your mouth, right? Both of these are external acts. They have absolutely nothing to do with what went into the man, and yet they are required in order to be considered purified. And finally, the last part of the purification was to wait until sundown, at which time he would be clean again. If he ate his meal at 6.55 p.m. and the day started at 6 p.m., then he would be defiled for 23 hours and five minutes. 
If he ate and then washed at 5.45 p.m., then he would only be defiled for 15 minutes. This shows us that the defilement is spiritual. Further, it pertained to an Israelite and stranger alike. In order to be considered clean, the command stands for both. As was seen in Leviticus, the washing of the garments pointed to trampling out sin in one's life. The idea is the root of the word for washing is to trample. They take their garments and they trample on them in the water and wash them. Everybody got that? You're trampling out sin in your life. The bathing points to the purification of one's life by Christ. And the evening time points to the time that Christ died and was placed in the tomb. With his death and burial, all defilement of man is truly washed away. This ceremonial period of defilement simply look forward to the cleansing from all defilement provided by the Lord. The third reference from Leviticus 22 was a prohibition for the priests. They were never to eat such an animal because they, in their work, anticipated the coming mediatorial role of Jesus. Thus, they were specifically prohibited from this. For the rest of this verse in Deuteronomy, it speaks of the alien or the foreigner. That is clearly showing a distinction between those in Christ and those who are not in Christ. The key thought is always Christ. It is either looking forward to him in typology by Israel or looking back on what he did for us and which now includes us in him. As it says, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The church is, like Israel was, intended to be at least, and will someday be a holy people to the Lord. Verse 21 finishes with, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. This is the third and final time that this is stated. The first was in Exodus 23, verse 19. The first of your first fruits of your land you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. The second time was in Exodus 34, 26 in a verbatim repeat of Exodus 23, 19. Now it is repeated, but without the note concerning the first fruits. Both of the first two mentions of this were in relation to the three annual pilgrim feasts. This particular prohibition is logically tied to the third such feast, the Feast of Ingathering. The boiling of a young goat in its mother's milk was a pagan practice. After it was boiled, and along with magic rites, the milk was used to sprinkle plantations and fields and gardens in hopes of them being more productive the next year. This then reflects those who refuse to give up magic practices right through the entire dispensation of grace and even through the tribulation period. Thus, it speaks of what is stated in Revelation chapter 9. There it says, the rest of mankind who are not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, here it is, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. This is a prohibition that speaks of what the people of God are not to do, just as was the case with the first two verses of this chapter that were looked at last week. The positive and negative precepts laid down here are all given in anticipation of Christ and in our relationship to him. As it says in both verse 2 and then again here in verse 21, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The marvel of these dietary laws given first in Leviticus 11 and then repeated here in our passage today is that they convey this truth to Israel in typology. They really were to do these things but the reason for doing them wasn't because it brought them any closer to God. 
Instead, it is because of what they picture. That does. An observant Jew can stick to every single dietary precept given here today, and indeed many do, and yet he can be as far from God as the greatest pagan. However, for those who live out what these laws typologically anticipate, they will come closer to the Lord. God is not looking for our externals, but he is carefully evaluating our internals. What is our heart condition before the Lord? And above all, that heart condition must be first set and fixed through trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Without that, absolutely nothing else matters in any human life in all of human history. One is either apart from Christ and tainted with sin that blocks his fellowship with God, or he is in Christ and has fellowship with God. From that point on, the fellowship that we experience is based on how we respond to what we have been instructed under the new covenant, which is outlined in the new Testament epistles. Let us not fail in our wholehearted devotion to applying this wonderful word to our every step. In this, God will certainly be pleased with our actions. As a reminder, if you've forgotten the details of what each of these animals signifies from the Leviticus sermons, please brush home, go back, and brush up on them, okay? Finally, please make sure that you truly are in Christ. Without that, all of the head knowledge on the planet won't do you one little bit of good. And in case you forgot it, the typology of the swine will reveal that to you. Make your head knowledge a heart knowledge today. Call on Christ and be reconciled to God through him. All right, everybody got it. We need Jesus. This is all pointing to Jesus. This has zero, absolutely zero to do with health or anything like that. Any nonsense that people pull out of their their theological bag of tricks. This all has to do with pointing to Christ. If somebody says don't eat pork and you don't eat it because you think you're going to please God more, you are now in trouble with the Lord. You are now a debtor to the whole law. If you don't like the taste of pork, don't eat it. Why would anybody do that? I'm going to prove to people that I'm not a, you know, whatever. By If you don't like it, don't eat it. But how can you not? You got bacon, you got ham, you've got uh, pork rinds. I mean, I could go on and on and on of all the tasty, delicious treats you can get out of a pig, okay? So don't be, let people push you around with this type of stuff. This is really, really important. This is theology that matters. This is doctrine that matters, okay? But before that doctrine comes, you must be sure that you are in Christ. And then none of it matters, okay? Nothing else outside of Christ matters anymore. You are in Christ, and everything you do is to be done for him. Everything that you breathe, everything that you think, just keep him in your mind. Meditate on the word. Live in fellowship with the Lord at all times, but first call on Christ. He died for your sins. You're a sinner. He was buried. He took your sins into the grave. He rose again, proving, one, that he had no sin of his own, proving that your sin remains in the grave, and proving that he is God Almighty. All right? This is what you need to do today. Please call on Jesus and then go and have a big bacon sandwich, okay? (laughs) Our closing verse comes from 1 Timothy 4. It is verses 4 and 5. For every creature of God is good. Every creature of God is good. And nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Everybody got that? Romans 14, 14 at the beginning of the sermon. And then we have 1 Timothy 4, verses 4 and 5 here. Every creature of God is good. And I've got a question for you. I said during the sermon that Paul says in various ways that the dietary laws are specifically through 
I gave you one in the text verse. I gave you one in the closing verse. We got some pins over here. I don't know if you all remember Alana. She and her sister, they're uh, Chinese girls adopted from China, and they've been here from uh, Broward County several times with their parents, the most wonderful family. She gave us some pins as instead of giving out cars and Maseratis for a while, she sent these up here, and she had a word, and I forgot what it was. It was a cute word that I was supposed to tell you on. I forgot, but it's very kind of her. If you get it, you take home a pin. If you're a guy and you want to give to somebody else, that's fine, but take your pin, okay? And I'll make sure that Alana knows that we're giving them out. Okay, I said during the sermon that Paul says in various ways that the dietary laws are specifically through. Romans 14, 14, and also uh, 1 Timothy 4, verses 4 and 5. Give me one of the other references that Paul states that the dietary laws are done. It's explicit. I've said it I, before every single um, Leviticus Feast of the Lord sermon. I quoted you these verses, every single one of them. I can't think. Can't think. Okay. Well, before I give you that verse, or at least one of them, because there are others, but um, I'm going to tell you that you can find in Acts chapter 10 implicitly. Peter's told to go talk to these people. The Holy Spirit falls on them, and they had pork in their belly. They didn't go and do all the stuff, right? Okay. Then we have it in Acts chapter 15. No dietary laws are given to the people, the Gentiles, okay? And then we also have it in the uh, explicit references of the doing away of the law in Romans and in Colossians and in Hebrews, like Hebrews 7, Hebrews 8, and Hebrews 10. But there is, I'm going to read you one of them right here. You all didn't get it. I'm sorry nobody gets a pen today. That's okay. Um, I'm going to take you to the book of Colossians, okay? And I'm going to take you to Colossians chapter 2. And then I'm going to take you to verses 16 and 17. I, I read these to you every single time before we did the uh, Leviticus uh, 23 sermons. So let no one judge you in food or in drink. That's the dietary laws of Israel right there. Or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. That's the feasts of the Lord, etc. He said, don't let anybody judge you. It's done. D-U-N. Done. Okay, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. There you go. Explicit. And there are others, but okay, here we go. A holy people to, oh, wait a minute. I didn't tell you this. I need to. Next week, Deuteronomy 14, 22 through 29. Are you supposed to give 10%? Is that what the Bible does tell? It's entitled the tithes of Israel. That'll be our 46th Deuteronomy sermon. Okay, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. But he also has expectations of you as he prepares you for entrance into his land of promise. So follow him and trust him. And he'll do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay, got a poem for you. Holy people to the Lord. You shall not eat any detestable thing. These are the animals which you may eat. The ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roe deer, the wild goat, the mountain goat, the antelope, and the mountain sheep, such are to be your meat. And you may eat every animal with cloven hooves, having the hoof split in two parts, and that chews the cut as well. Among the animals, that's where your clean animal list starts. Nevertheless, of those that chew the cut or have cloven hooves, you shall not eat such as these, such you shall not do. The camel, the hare, and the rock hyrax, for they chew the cud, but they do not have cloven hooves. They are unclean for you. 
Also, the swine is unclean for you, because it has cloven hooves, yet does not chew the cud. You shall not eat their flesh or touch their dead carcasses, not even in a soup containing the spud. These you may eat of all that are in the waters. You may eat all that have fins and scales. And whatever does not have fins and scales, you shall not eat. It is unclean for you, both for your ladies and your males. All clean birds you may eat, but these you shall not eat. The eagle, the vulture, the buzzard too, the red kite, the falcon, and the kite after their kinds. Every raven after its kind shall be unclean for you. The ostrich, the short-eared owl, the seagull, and the hawk after their kinds. The little owl, the screech owl, the white owl, you shall not eat that. The jackdaw, the carrion vulture, the fisher owl, the stork, the heron after its kind, and the hoopoe, and the bat. Also, every creeping thing that flies is unclean for you. They shall not be eaten, such you shall not do. You may eat all clean birds. You shall not eat anything that dies of itself. You may give it to the alien who is within your gates, that he may eat it, or you may sell it to a foreigner, but keep it off your pantry shelf. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, so be ye pure like silk. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true, and we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us your path you have shown. Hallelujah, we shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, Thank you for the lesson of Israel. You've taken real things that they had to go through and you've taught us spiritual lessons with them. And what a joy it is to see these things and to know that we are free from those constraints because Christ came and did all that we could never do ourselves. And thank you that you've given us a sure word. It's not something with contradictions. It's not something that we can't know what's on your mind. And in fact, we can know. Thank you for that, that you're the creator of the whole universe. And yet you have come down and given us this instruction so that we can live rightly before you. Thank you for that. And thank you for one more thing, for making it so easy to simply live by faith. Because if we had to do these things, we'd all fail every day. Lord God, thank you for the faith that you have, for the gospel that you have given us that we can receive by faith. We do thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.